Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast presented by Invisible. Uh, today we've got Francis uh, and we're going to go, Francis Pedrasa, and we're going to go over all of the different business units and why we're starting to split out, split off into separate business units. So welcome to the show, Francis. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, so why are we doing this? Why, uh, why are we going from one company to many companies? Let's rewind about... 18 months, start of 2022, we were at a um, 10 mil run rate at the start of 2022. We ended 2022 at a 25 mil run rate. Now it's uh, the second half of 2023. And it looks like we have a path to end 2023 at a hundred mil run rate. So think about that. It's bonkers. Um, yeah. So it's like 10x, um, a 10x journey from say January 2024, um, uh, working back to January 2022. So so Jan 2022 to Jan 2024, assuming we get to 100 mil run rate, knock on wood, um, like that's, that's 10x. Um, I read a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. I remember where I was when I read it. Uh, I was in London, it was early July, late June, early July. And the book described a simple dynamic that it claimed is as powerful as physics, right? It's like, if you wanna fight with this, you're fighting with physics. What happens when you fight with physics, Stuart? You lose. Physics wins. <laughs> um, so uh, we're we're all about heroism at this company, but you don't want to fight doomed, doomed defeats. You know you don't want to fight a, a um, doomed battle. Um, so um, the question has always fascinated me my whole life. Like really, I remember thinking this thought and having this question as a kid. Why do big companies suck at innovating? I think that was the the term I used as a kid. Suck. I grew up in San Diego, so like I have a lot of bro speak. I can't get out of me no matter. Gnarly how bro. Many. It's gnarly bro. Companies are gnarly. Yeah. Like why do big companies suck at innovating? And 
Clayton Christensen wrote this really compelling answer, which is based on a ton of research. And it's basically this. I'm going to explain the innovator's dilemma to you because you may think you know what it is because you've heard it used in talks. Um, but most people who explain it fail to actually explain the dilemma and why it's a dilemma. Let's suppose you have a sales team that is doing million dollar deals and then suddenly shows suddenly somebody shows up with a $10 million deal and you prove that a $10 million deal can be done. Then everyone in the sales team is now focused on doing the next $10 million deal, right? Um, and so this it can happen at multiple levels. So in Invisible's history, we were doing, you know, it was there was a there was a point in time in which a hundred k your deal was a huge deal for us. There was a point in time which a million dollar deal was a huge deal for us. And now, you know, we're doing ten million dollar plus 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 deals. Um, and um, and so let's look at this from the point of view of new business units. We've got. Uh, about half a dozen new business units. If one of those business units, all of them are below $1 million run rates. If any of them came to me with the news that we had gotten our first million dollar dollars of revenue contracted, we did our first million dollar deal, I'd be like, so incredibly happy, proud, impressed. I would just throw a party, you know? Incredible, amazing, amazing. But wait a second, you see the issue. From the point of view of the company, it doesn't move the needle. It's like 1% of our revenue. And by the time, like the amount of effort that went into them getting that million dollar run rate, if that same effort was applied to the main business, maybe we would have grown our run rate by 10 or, or more, right? And so there's this tendency for uh, the, the business that's scaling, that has a proven model that is growing at just an insane rate, um, to suck up all the time, energy, and resources in the room, like a vacuum. Um, and, uh, but now let's think about, so, so there's this, uh, to put it another way, there's this fetishization of invisible, <laughs> um, versus say, I'm going to pick on Everest as an example, say versus Everest. It's like, why put any energy or resources or time or money into Everest when it can go into visible now? I'm framing this as if it's an opinion problem. Like if only we could change everyone's opinion and help everyone realize that the innovator's dilemma existed. But I could preach the innovator's dilemma. Everyone in the company could read the book and the innovator's dilemma would be just as powerful as it was the day before. Think about that. That's why it's physics. It's not, it's not a, um, it's not morality. You're not convincing it's, anyone. It's economics. Um, and uh, and so let's think of it another way. Invisible, 
this great company that we're all so excited to be at because it's a rocket ship, right? And we're all rocket ship chasers. <laughs> we all want to be a part of a success story. Well, the first time I heard of the term rocket rocket ship ch chaser was reading an article of yours. I'd never heard about that before. <laughs> I think I coined it. Um, it's like an ambulance chaser, except for startups. <laughs> no, it totally exists. It's absolutely 100% exists. It's 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, we're now hiring one operations manager a week. When you're hiring one operations manager a week, like it's inevitable that a few rocket ship chasers are going to get in somehow, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, uh, but let's rewind. This company is coming up on its eighth, eighth year, the uh, finishing its eight, eighth year. It's going into its ninth year. October 1st, 2015 was when we were founded. Um, and so we're about a month away from the end of our eighth year. From October 1st, 2015 till, um, call it June 1st, 20. Uh, 2019, that's how long it took us to get to a one mil run rate. From June 1st, 2019 till, um, call it, uh, February, uh, call, call it, let's say March 1st, 2020. It took us that long to break above a one mil run rate. So simplifying, it's been an eight year journey. Four of those years, it took us to get to a one mil run rate. One of those years, it took us to get above a one mil run rate. And then the remaining three years, three or four years, you a hundred X. Simplifying even further, it's been an eight year journey. The last three to four years, we've hundred X the first four to five years. It took us to get from zero to one. Yeah. It's, it's just that like up into the right, the rocket yeah. ship. It's the nonlinearity of it. Yeah. And so, um, so, so given that, you know, um, if every single new company we built had the same exact performance as Invisible, in other words, if we had, if we, if as innovators, we were geniuses and like every single company was going to be a huge success and get to $100 million of revenue in the same amount of time that it took Invisible, which is eight years. This is where the innovator's dilemma kicks in. You wouldn't do them. Because they because essentially like they're just not worth your time. When you when you when you have a rocket ship that's already running, why would you like invest in this other thing that's not quite clear? Even if it is even if it is clear that it's going to take four four to eight years, you can invest uh, one million dollars into invisible and 10x that one million dollars as opposed to maybe in four years 10xing that that investment. Correct. But, but it's not only that it's not worth your time. It's that even if you decided it was worth your time, you would not be able to get the organization to do it. Yeah. Like you would not actually be able to muscle 
the time, energy, resources, attention, because it would just get sucked out by physics into the big business, into the main business that's scaling. That's why big companies can't innovate. That's the reason. Now, here's here's just to make it, I really want to, I'm spending most of the time on the dilemma and on the problem, not the solution, because um, you know, somebody once taught me as an early entrepreneur, you, you know, like um, great pitches and great, great businesses are not vitamins. They're painkillers. You know, it's like, you got to spend a lot of time in the pitch, sticking the knife in and twisting the knife. It's very visceral, like painful, you know, image. But like I'm twisting the knife at this point, but it's really important that I, I do it. Um, okay, here's the here's the the twist. Um, even if all of these new business units outperform Invisible dramatically and do it in half the time, so they all get to 100 mil run rate in four years instead of eight years. The innovator's dilemma still persists and they would they would not they would they would all die. They would die um they wouldn't they wouldn't get to the promised land because they would have died from starvation beforehand. Why? Because invisible is at a hundred mil run rate now. Hmm. But if we succeed, it's not going to stay there. If two ifs, like if we assume that our total addressable market is practically infinite, which it is, like what is the universe of companies that need automation, AI, and operations help? Infinite. Uh, yeah, um, awesome. uh, what is the, e even a smaller universe, what is the universe of companies that's AI enablement but in AI training? What is the universe of companies that need AI training, uh, you know, relative to our size? Like how big is that market? Just huge, enormous markets, right? So we're in huge markets. This that's the first conditional, first assumption for invisible. Second assumption for invisible. Our business model is somewhat defensible and it's going to at least stay that defensible or become more defensible over time, right? And that's a scene qua non, uh, uh, without which nothing. Um as well, because if we don't have a defensible business in our main business, then we're fucked for other reasons. Uh, excuse my French, you're gonna have to bleep that out, right? Like, um, so those are the two assumptions. Um, so um, assumption one, infinite TAM, assumption two, defensible business model. So if those two assumptions are true, then invisible should at least double top line until it gets to a billion run rate or much higher numbers or much higher numbers. Uh, if we are not doubling top line every year, then something is broken. So either something is broken with the first assumption, there is not an infinite TAM, or something is broken with the second assumption, we don't have a defensible business model, or there's something really broken in the leadership team or the execution or like something in the piping, you know, like, but fix it, you know, it would, it would create a kind of crisis, an urgent crisis if we weren't doubling. Now, this is where um, a venture style business is very different than a private equity style business. Like mm -hmm. that non-linearity is very unusual, but it's important for, for the audience and partners to understand this, which is that if you had a normal business, like if you had a pizza shop 
and it grew by 50% a year, you'd have like add up enough years, you'd have like the most successful pizza, pizza shop in the world, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, you'd have like pizza hut or something. Um, but in this business, in the technology industry, in these markets, under these assumptions, we're playing a much more aggressive game. And if we're not at least doubling, you actually have the risk of failure. Not just, it's not just the risk of, in, in other words, it's not just a moderate your ambition thing of like, oh, you know, we're growing by 50% a year. We're still growing so fast. Like we're still going to build a great business. Like relax. Like why do you need to at least double every year? No, 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 no. If you're not at least doubling every year, somebody else is. Interesting. And so that somebody else is going to eat you. Yeah. So this is, this yeah. goes to Helmer. Scale economies are the first power for a reason. Like, and if you can't, in other words, if you don't have one of the seven powers, then you're not defensible. But if you do have one of the seven powers in this business, you're at least doubling every year. Mm. Like, in other words, a good proof that you have power is that you're scaling. And if you're not scaling, you probably don't have power. Mm. And it's, it's almost like you're getting to a whole nother level of the game, like the, the, right. the top level of the game, which we, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about in that, in that sense, but like it, it, where the rules essentially change. And that goes back to the, the physics part is that you're, you're now under a different set of physical laws once you get to that scale, basically. And so, correct. And so how does separating all of these into the, all of these different business units solve that? Yeah, almost there. I want to complete the train <laughs> sure, shot because sure. like twist, you twisting the knife. So um, uh, first of all, what we've done is incredibly unusual because, <clears throat> because think about the, the growth trajectory from a one mil run rate in January, 2020 to a three mil run rate at the end of 2020 um, from a three mil run rate at the start of 2021 to a 10 mil run rate at the end of 2021, from a 10 mil run rate at the start of 2022, to a 25 mil run rate at the end of 2022, from a 25 mil run rate at the start of 2023, tracking for a 100 mil run rate by the end mm. of this year. Um, our growth rate accelerated as we grew. That's unusual because it should be harder to grow faster as you get bigger because of the law of large numbers. <laughs> Um, so what does that point to? Part of it points to something working in our business. Part of it also may point to bubble dynamics, right? So, uh, we've caught the tiger by the tail. In other words, next year, we may more than double again. This year, we may have... We'll see how we end the year, but we may have quadrupled um, top line, but already we're, we're certainly, we've tripled top line. So like way more than double. So so let's just play it out. If we get to a 100 mil run rate at the end of this year and we double at the end of next year, we're at a 200 mil run rate, run rate. If we more than double, we're at a 250, 300, 350, 400, right? And then what does that set up for the next year? Well, if you double the next year, then you go to a 400 mil run rate. Or if you if you did more than a 200 the previous year, 
then, you know, if you did a 250, then you get to a 500 mil run rate. If you do a 300, then you get to a 600 mil run rate at the end of 2025. In order to do, in order to actually do that and keep up with that, you are hiring so aggressively. You are, you're investing so heavily in sales and marketing and CS and operations and engineering and whatever. This becomes a big company fast, which we've tripled the partnership in the last year, basically, like last 18 months. That means the cultural memory has been eroded dramatically, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we're trying our best to absorb everyone culturally and trying to keep something special about this place and mm -hmm. <laughs> maintain as much alpha as we can. But like, just think about what that physics does over the next year or two. That basically forces everyone into, to use a, a Hindu concept, drishti, into incredible focus on a single point, focus on a single point, right? Which is when you have an organization that is scaling that fast, hiring that fast, growing that fast, you can't have more than one focus. Mm. And, mm. and, and if we think a million run, a million dollars of revenue is distracting, you know, in a new business unit, if we have a hundred mil business, how much more intense is that? Let's just say next year, you know, Mickle gets to a one mil run rate by the end of this year with Everest. And then next year he gets to a three mil run rate or a four mil run rate or a five mil run rate. So you like quintuples in 2023. But meanwhile, Invisible is at a 250 mil run rate. And so he's still irrelevant. So it's like a moving goalpost. Like you're never going to catch up. Unless you have a year, and this is key, unless you have a year where the main business somehow drops or slows mm -hmm. down, right? Either slows down or drops right as the other businesses are maturing. And then you're like, oh, thank God, five years ago or 10 years ago, I started diversifying. So investing in new business innovation is true long-term strategy. It's true long-term strategy. Anyone who's trying to understand how this makes any sense, who's looking at it from a one to two year perspective, or even a three or even a four year perspective is going to miss the whole effing point, mm. like badly miss it. <laughs> mm. um, the bubble, the bubble dynamic is scary. Like, I just want to make sure that partners like steal themselves mentally. And I'm going to repeat this until they're sick of hearing it. We may have another monster year next year. And then the year after, like revenue may drop by 50%. And not only revenue may drop by 50%, our multiple may collapse, right? Because bubbles affect both the stock price and the revenue if you're exposed on both. <laughs> and so... um this is all the, this is the power of of the mind is that the mind is able to travel to the future so a year ago more than a year ago last early last summer i'm reading this book and i'm time traveling in my mind and i'm like oh shit we have a massive diversification problem at every level 
So we're concentrated in one client. So we need to deconcentrate by adding, you know, many big accounts. And then we're concentrated in one vertical. So we need to add multiple verticals. We're also concentrated in one business. We need to create new businesses. And so let's do all of it, right? Hired a CEO. Ben's now doing great. That was the first super high-risk move. Um, that move, like, thank goodness that that's working. Um, and, and then the second move was launching Infinity and hiring a bunch of CEOs for new business units. Those CEOs in my book are doing great. They're going through their entrepreneurial journey. And, um, and we're now aggressively building AI training and AI enablement and trying to have AI enablement keep up, right? So we're trying to diversify at all these different levels. This is why we need to spin out all of these business units, because if they stay attached to the parent company, the parent company will 100% kill them. Yeah. Not because they're not great businesses and not because those aren't great entrepreneurs and not because those ideas couldn't become multi-billion dollar companies <laughs> yeah. because they will be crushed by the scale physics of the innovator's dilemma. And this this actually happened to me in the, I've, this is now the third time that I've started a company within a company in the first company that ex, that exact same thing happened where basically the client, the 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 company itself was growing. Um, and so they held a whole bunch of clients. And as soon as anything happened, basically all the resources would go to, to that, to those clients basically, and get diverted from, from the, from that, the entrepreneurial business. Um, and so we need to spin out and we need to spin out because essentially we need to separate ourselves. It's like the moving from uh, codependence to independence and then to interdependence uh, so that we essentially like, are still part of the same sphere, but we're no longer codependent on invisible as this sort of like giant thing. Cause then it'll just, we'll just get sucked into it basically. Yeah. It's and like the, tricky, a black hole. the tricky thing is how do you, and this is, this goes back to my sort of curiosity as a child, like why do big companies suck at innovating? Um, there's, there's sort of a, a response to that, which is like, who cares? Like, why do they need to be good at innovating? Right? Like mm. wh why not just have startups? And then the, the reason why it's such an appealing question is, well, big companies have huge advantages. Like it, it's, it's a huge advantage that we have a strong hiring function. It's a huge advantage that we have a big network. It's a, it's a huge advantage that we have a customer base. And I can keep going, right? There's just a there's a huge advantage that we have a ton of different forms of specialization on the team, and we have experts that we can ask questions to, and it's a huge advantage that we have an engineering team. It's like there's so many huge advantages. So the the design challenge is in solving for the innovator's dilemma. How do you take all of the adjacencies and attack all those opportunities with new companies? Right. So that's what we're mm. doing. Each of those new businesses is like, mm. oh my God, there's an opportunity here. Oh my God, there's an opportunity here. Let's start this business. Let's start this business. So, like executive support. Oh my God, there's a huge opportunity, executive support. It's outside of our main business. Let's start a business. Let's spin it out so it doesn't get crushed by the main business. Let's give it resources. 
its own resources from the outside. So let's set it up to fundraise on its own. Let's set it up to sell on its own. Let's make it independent. But let's make sure we have an economic interest in it and that it's close enough that it can benefit from all the network effects of the platform. And that's the thing that we're trying to get right. And I think that we are getting it right, but we're just very early in the movie. So for the benefit of the audience, like the mandate right now for the finance and legal team is spin them out, create new entities, like, and spin those entities so that those entrepreneurs are independent. My message to the entrepreneurs is build your own boards, right? Like, I'm on the board, Ben's on the board, Joe's on the board, but that's not enough because when we're meeting with Realm, say, for example, Realm's board is a fiduciary to Realm, not to Invisible. It's a key concept. They need to be thinking about how do we advance Realm's interests? What's good for Realm? What? How do we you know, prove out Realm's business model? How do we attract capital into Realm? How do we attract talent into Realm? What are the metrics that Realm needs to push up? You know, um, And that, in order to get that dynamic, if Ben, Joe, and I are hopping around on all the boards, you know, board hopping, we're quickly going to just naturally focus on what's good for an invisible. And so we're still in the innovator's dilemma. The only way to get out of it is to anchor, to balance Ben, Joe, and I as a, as a, as a voice with board members for Realm. So for example, like Michelle, uh is like a great advisor for realm and a really good voice because he's primarily focused on realm he's not focused on invisible right mm -hmm. um so we want to create that dynamic for all the companies where there are board members and advisors and team members who have equity in that business not necessarily equity and in invisible so that in a hypothetical world in which Invisible either skyrockets up or skyrockets down, either exists or doesn't exist. That economic entity continues to concern itself with itself. It's still it's still advancing its interests. It's still continuing to go forward. So, so what is the, what is the proper balance between because like so, what is the balance between a new business unit that gets spin, spun, spun out? And like, what are the connections to that and an invisible? The first is the informal one, which is the most powerful of all the network effects, which is just the relationships, right? <laughs> like if I'm involved, then I bring with me my network, right? And so the second one is incentives, um, which then those two combined like the relationships and then the incentives do most of the heavy lifting. So the incentives are, we own a huge percentage of these companies. Like by default, we own like 75% to start. And then over time, we will own 25% after dilution. So um, barring a change of control event, in other words, unless we sell or, or basically like get to some very late stage action or activity, we should own no less than 25% of these companies. So we're huge shareholders in these companies and have a massive interest. If they succeed, we succeed. So there's a real reason for us to do all the stuff there. Um, yeah.
So that's, there... the, that's, that's the current setup. And, and just, you know, for the sake of it, like we're staying very mentally agile about thinking about the model, like at the board level, we're thinking about, you know, alternative ways of structuring the whole thing. Um, because to the extent that it's, it is a distraction for invisible, um, uh, yeah, we just need to make the, the ultimate end goal is, um, pursuing these opportunities and making sure that investors get exposure to them, like shareholders, shareholders get exposure if they want exposure and, um, and the entities get the the best chance that they have at succeeding so that the, you maximize enterprise value. Right. So, so, uh, so the structure, the structure is in service of maximizing enterprise value and maximizing exposure. Um, and, uh, and so, so once you have, once you have the economic alignment and you have the relationships in place, that's the majority of it. And then other things emerge as well. So like, I suspect that all these companies are going to become like customers of each other, basically. Hmm. Um, now, I can't, I don't think the right approach is forcing that or creating, or as much as I love frameworks, overly frameworking it. I don't want to like, you know, necessarily, I think it's premature right now to come up with some sort of shared services thing where it's like all infinity units get an X percent discount on invisible or all infinity units get, you know, or like in, if invisible, I'd much rather things emerge like, um, invisible wants to buy realm services to help it with its community. Um, uh, Genevieve then does a deal with Ben hmm. and that, that deal works for both units. Great. And I, I think it's important to talk about how, like how that came about as well, because, uh, like one of the first times that we tried was to try to build a marketplace internally, but then found out that those marketplaces, it was, it was challenging to actually set that marketplace up. So I imagine yep. that a lot of the kind of incentive to spin these out is so that they can actually test themselves against the market to build a fair price basically. Right. Yeah. So this is um, the conglomerate discount problem, the conglomerate discount problem, the conglomerate discount problem. Um, so uh, conglomerates tend to be valued at less than the sum of their parts. Huh. Um, so this is one of the reasons why you want to spin out. Um, in other words, when PayPal and eBay separated at that moment, the combination of PayPal stock and eBay stock was worth much more than when they were just eBay, when they were just one company. Mm. And so this is like Google is paying a penalty for Gmail and G Suite being part of the same company as Search, being part of the same company as their AI division. Not just a performance penalty and that they like seem to, you know, be underperforming in each unit because they're not focused. But an actual financial penalty, like the stock market is paying less mm -hmm. for Google overall than it would for the parts of it. Um, so 
I think conglomerates are a bit of a conceit, you know, um, unless you can really prove that there's a very, very strong network effect hmm. that, that can only be created under one roof. I'll use an example, Berkshire versus Amazon. So Berkshire, Berkshire is one of the top 10 biggest companies in the world. Um, and it owns stakes in companies like Geico, Apple, um, Seize Candy, Coca-Cola. But when Buffett buys a company, he, he'll like try to convince them, hey, you know, you have corporate jets, sell them. Use NetJets instead. NetJets is a Berkshire company. They're a great company. Like you should do it. Join the family, right? But if that company ultimately like does not want to sell its corporate jets and does not want to become a JetSet subscriber, like he's not going to force them. Um, and, but by and large, he does not, um, he's not operating his companies. He's, he owns them mm. he, in whole or in part. Whereas Amazon, um, Jeff Bezos chose to keep AWS and Amazon retail under one roof. Mm. Those two businesses, other than the, their origin story in which basically AWS was built in order to support Amazon retail because Amazon retail was getting so big it needed its own infrastructure solution. So there's an origin story there. He he built it. Um, but really, do they have anything to do with each other? They're totally unrelated businesses. So if AWS was a separate business from Amazon retail, probably those two companies would be worth more separately than they are together. Um Although actually what may actually occur is that like Amazon retail gets exposed, its weaknesses get exposed, more exposed. Mm. Um, like AWS is to some extent propping up Amazon retail. I don't want to get into an analysis, an overly deep analysis of Amazon, but the point, the reason why it's a good, it's a good framing Berkshire versus Amazon is um, the type of companies that they are. So Amazon is a huge operating company somehow miraculously innovating at scale. I don't know how they've been able to overcome the innovators dilemma to the extent that they have, mm. but they started basically, they've started basically one other business, right? Inside of this company. Um, it's, it's very hard to innovate when you have a huge operating company. Um, that absorbs a ton of daily attention. Mm. Um, whereas Berkshire is basically like two people, but if you extend it, they now have a, they actually now have about, I understand about six to 12 people that actually really truly matter at that company. Oh. Um, so call but it like a, six, but, six, but that's an investment four. company. So what you're saying, it's, an it's not yeah, an so, innovation. Company. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. So, so with Infinity, what we're trying to build is an asset manager that's also an innovation company. It's it's uh, it's both an asset allocator and an innovation company, but it's separating the operating component mm. so that it's not distraction mm. is really, really important. So like, um, otherwise you can't, 
you know, make those, um, those really long-term bets. Like when, mm. when, um, when Buffett, when Buffett decides to invest in Coca-Cola, does he have to worry about the opinions of an employee at Geico? No, <laughs> no. Now, does an employee at Geico worry, worry about Buffett's investment in Coca-Cola? Also, no, they just worry about Geico stock, right? They don't worry about Berkshire stock and they don't worry about Coca-Cola stock, right? And so right now we are solving this problem. Like, you know, depending on when this podcast is announced and when somebody's listening to it, like they're either going to be confused and they're going to be like, I don't get it. We're all one company right now. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's the point. Like we need to become a whole bunch of different companies. Like well, each different business unit needs to have its separate stock. So there needs to be Everest stock and Realm stock and Invisible stock. And this will be true for all of them. So Lightning stock, Foundation stock, Radiant uh, stock, and, and Infinity stock. And, and Infinity basically, you know, is going to make moves that makes sense for infinity when it allocates capital um, and invisible is going to get make moves that make sense for invisible when it allocates so, capital and, and separation, that separation is going to help everybody focus because then you don't have weird questions in all hands where like a product manager or an engineer or, you know, somebody very rightly is like, why are we spending resources over there? Like, like, how does that make any sense? Like, why don't we put it there? Like, they're they're like getting nosy about some other thing, which in the current structure is right for them to do. That's why so, the current structure. That's why the current structure needs to change. And and, and so anyway, that, was, that was the plan. Like, the, we are the only reason why that is not already the case is because the finance and legal team can't keep up with my ideas from a year ago. And I say that with no offense to the fi yeah. finance and legal team. They know it. Like Joe, yeah. Joe would not deny it in a, at all. Like, you know, they're moving as fast as they can to catch up to the ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, and your, your idea is not unique. I mean, it is unique in its implementation, but it is not unique in terms of the historical uh, uh, um, examples. And there's so many examples that I've since I've been involved in this that I've been researching, including um, BlackRock. BlackRock ha is the is the most close example in terms of creating different business units. But then the question that keeps on coming in my mind is that as you've been talking, and I want to get to the actual infinity business units, but the question that comes to my mind is that Alphabet, Alphabet and Google, like you, you're saying that there's this innovators dilemma, but then as you've been talking, I've been thinking, okay, well, Google and Alphabet they basically are jumping headstream into the um into the into the ai world and a fact that i just learned recently is that they are not going to be constrained by the current computing problems of gpus because they have like thousands of years of gpu compute uh, available to them and so like how is that like did google actually survive the 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 um innovators dilemma because they are they have like definitely innovated the entire time. And we all thought that they were going down, yeah. but they've had this thing in the background. And also they also moved out to Alphabet so that like Google is just one part of Alphabet. And so essentially you're front running that you're saying, okay, we're going to be this big company. Uh, Google, it took 10 years for Google to, to, to separate out. We'll do this yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. That's a great question. And by the way, I think we should do a separate session. Like I think we should finish this, 
finish this session just on on the platform level and yeah. before diving into business units and then let's do a separate session and go into the BUs. Yeah. Um, and uh, and by the way, like uh, I know we're recording, so we don't we'll, we'll we'll do the scheduling later. But I can literally we can do it right after. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Apple and Google. Uh, in investing in high scale capital investment type projects are the sort of things that big companies are good at innovating at, mm. right? So if it relates to your core business and you have some pre-existing super advantage <laughs> Uh, or including including just having lots of money uh, and having lots of engineers or having lots of servers or having a big installed base or whatever, then that is the sort of thing that big companies can do and they, they benefit from throwing their weight around, right? But if you were telling me that Apple and Google are going to like start, you know, um, new businesses that are seeking product market fit and are going to start from you know, basically from scratch and they're going to try to take their advantages over here and move them over there. That's where they, that's, that's where it, it, it doesn't work. Um, and so uh, to be clear, Google being part of Alphabet is not actually real separation. Like mm -hmm. it's not, it, it's not a solution to the innovator's dilemma. Like the existence of a holding company doesn't actually create the solution. The innovation. Because, because Alphabet is the traded stock. Google is not a separately traded stock oh, from any other inside of Alphabet. So, yeah. Yeah. so if I'm, if I'm an employee at, can you name a single other Alphabet company other than Google? <laughs> like Loon? Is Loon even a company? Uh, I don't think so. I think Loon stopped a while ago. I mean- Waymo? I think... Waymo? Waymo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> self-driving. Okay. Okay. Right? Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. So so if I if I'm an employee at Waymo, do I check Waymo stock or do I check Google stock? I mean Alphabet stock. Check Alphabet stock, right? Yeah. That's that's the problem, right? Is 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 that? And so but Facebook is different. Facebook did actually have does actually have different companies within that larger Meta thing because you can I can I can point to Meta or I can point to Facebook and I can point to WhatsApp and I can point to Instagram. All of those were bought by Facebook, but yeah. It, it's all one stock. Yeah. Okay. It's all one stock. Um, so what we're contemplating is totally separate stocks. Interesting. And what is the relationship, if any, between those different stocks? Wait, to, to go back to your to go back to your yeah. question, like it's in, you're getting at a very important nuance or distinction. Um. In the um, like, who's gonna in, who's gonna invent the next graphics processor? Like, probably Nvidia. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they have all the ingredients. They have all the people that know everything about graphics processors. They have all the factories. They have all the technology that is related to that. So the innovator's dilemma is not a claim that big companies 
So this is where my childish comment, like, why do big companies suck at innovating? It's too childish of a question. Like, that's why I said I was a child when I said, like, NVIDIA, big companies are great at innovating in intensive innovation in in an existing direction. Yeah. So actually, and this is very well explained in the book. This is why I always say, read the book. Like, I'm not going to be able to, even if we do an extended session, I'm not really going to be able to capture every nuance, but like. In the book, they talk about how big companies are good at innovating in the direction that their physics wants to go. So if you are a huge graphics card company, you're going to be the best at inventing the um, a, a graphics card that is more powerful than the previous graphics card that extends um, the performance of the existing technology in an existing direction of performance. Where you get disruptive innovation is when you're like, actually, we don't need a more powerful graphics card. We need a graphics card that is as small as um, uh, a, a postage stamp. I don't know, it's, that's not small enough. Um, like these days you need something that's tiny. We need a graphics card that's so small it could be an ocular implant. There you go. That's that's it. Like we need we need graphics cards that are like ocular implants to install in human brains. And they need to be they're they're like um we're actually gonna help them. We're, we're creating a technology to cure blindness, and we're trying to see if we can install a graphics card in the human brain. Then NVIDIA is not capable of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 is disruptive innovation, and and that can occur in 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 um in ways that are surprising. Like Seagate is the company that he talks about in the book. You know, is the best hard drive company in the world, building you know large hard drives for for like um, desktop computers, and they were not able to make the switch to to laptops. And then they, and then and then the company that did it for laptops was not able to make the switch to mobile phones. And then presumably, you know, the company that did it for mobile phones is not able to move to smartwatch or to, you know, glasses or whatever. So um, there are companies like Apple. And this is why I think, you know, Steve Jobs is something like, um, you know, pardon the sacrilegious use of the term. Um, he, there's something messianic about that guy as a historical mm. figure. <laughs> like, mm. because he like, Apple has all seven of the seven powers, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and like, he was able to innovate at scale in in ways that you wouldn't think that a big company can innovate and like branch in all these directions and create this like, um, uh, tight network effect. So so the network effect that pairs AirPods and the iPhone is so strong that you wouldn't want iPhone stock and MacBook Pro stock and AirPods stock to be different companies. But the size of the AirPods is bigger than like most companies. Mm. (laughs) This thing, and I'm holding my hand, the AirPods, like this business is bigger Mm. than most companies, like even a lot of Fortune 500 companies, right? Like, I don't know, like I don't know the actual numbers there exactly, but this is is a giant business. And And this is a giant business. This is a giant business, my MacBook. And so they could all be separate businesses from a financial point of view, but they're so tightly network affected 
that somehow they're able to do it in one company. And this and is a, huge, yeah. it's sort of like the exception that proves the rule in a way. Like it's the perfect exception because it it isn't an exception. It 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 really is just a, at a borderline limit of like this is the absolute limit of what a company can do in terms of innovating at scale. It's really remarkable. And, and the huge difference. The uh, the um, those aren't there's no they're not categoric they're not categorically different companies right AirPods iPhone and MacBook are sort of within a category they were able to put it within a category and this is where I actually tend to get trapped it's like well it's all in the category of knowledge work and it's like no that's too broad a category it's like it's all in the category of tech enabled services too broad a category. Um, those are broad enough categories to go after at the infinity level as a thesis, but they're, they're too broad a category for a company. Well, and, and that's, that's the exact point that I was, that I was thinking about is that Apple is the exception to the rule because it's a physical product company with huge supply chains that you have to manufacture and like, you have to time them all across like different borders with all these different regulatory things, whereas invisible and infinity, what you're, what we're planning is basically there's just is within the realm of virtual space, like and work itself, and like the 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 diversification of work within this knowledge workspace, which is in this sort of like infinite knowledge space where it's it, where anything is possible, and also it's like how you frame it basically, because Invisible is an interesting company because of how it was framed about automating repetitive work and like separating that that out into like a way that most of the venture people couldn't understand um because it was just like so uh like like oh any work oh yeah 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 all of any any work yeah you can bring us any work and we'll we'll do it better basically like like that Correct. idea like didn't fit into a vertical kind of thing didn't fit as a matter of fact um that's a great example invisible itself was sort of a borderline um case where VCs seemed to be right for a long time because Invisible seemed to be a shitty company. Um, and then Francis ended up being right, or like Invisible ended up being right. Like uh, that that actually, no, 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 no. Like you could build a radically horizontal thing. Um, but then there's a bit of like, who's going to get the last laugh? Like VCs right now could say, yeah, like, you know, uh, if you'd listened to us, you would have quit and you wouldn't have kept going. But now what ultimately worked was like a very specific use case, right? And uh, right now, the, well, but right now the fact that we're highly concentrated yeah. in a single use case makes them look right. And then we need to make that we need to make them wrong again. But that but like that, that use case is no. yes, yeah, such a vast use case that's not applicable to one one vertical. Like like the use case of AI is like the the one you're in we're in right now is very, very, very specified, but but what it could lead to is is incredibly diversified. Correct. And the fact that we we were even able to go after the opportunity involved rejecting their advice many times and not focusing on insurance or not focusing on food delivery or not focusing on um, these other opportunities that, that presented themselves. And and the same thing I believe will continue to be true. Now we need to we need to prove them wrong again. In the next year, we need to 
radically deconcentrate our business so that we are in multiple verticals, multiple use cases, both within AI training, we need to diversify as much as possible, but within AI enablement, we need to diversify as much as possible. And AI enablement and needs to go from being 15% of our business to being 80% of our business, right? So so we need to, to prove the thesis yet again. And, it, and, and the reason why is it's at a different level of scale, right? So it's like, this is the nature of nonlinearity. It's like um, you make, let's just say you make a hundred bets and then you have a power law. And so one of them ends up being, you know, uh, worth more than all of them. So the question was, were you wrong to make a hundred bets? Why didn't you just pick the one that worked? Well, it's like, you didn't know that it worked in advance. You had to make a hundred bets. And then now that that one thing blew the F, then guess what? You need to make a hundred bets. And then like, it's going to happen again and again and again at different levels of scale. And so you just go up these S curves. And when you're in the, the, the vertical part of the S curve, mm-hmm. um, you become very myopic because you're like, well, this is vertical. Why do anything else? And it's like, well, guess what? It's an S curve. You just can't see the fact that you're in yeah. an S curve. You're in the vertical part of the S. You got to touch my, you're, yeah. You're going to hit some limit. And then in that limit, you're going to need to become super experimental again and go very horizontal. And then you're going to go vertical again and you're going to forget about horizontality. And that doesn't change the fact that at a different level of zoom, you're very clearly going through both horizontal and vertical motions. And that is why you should read Go to Lesher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm just not even going to say why, just like the, what that thing I just said. Well, and, and you got to you got to talk to my uncle who started a software company in the 80s. And he he gave me just like the, the I can't remember the exact story that he was saying, but it's reminding me of exactly what you're saying is that as soon as he IPO'd, um, he started thinking about like, well, where where where, where are we going to run into five to 10 years down the line? And he started setting up the conditions so that the exact problems that he would eventually face would be solved by then, basically, because it's the success is such a um crazy thing because you're talking about that s curve and you're you're feeling the success everybody's feeling the success but it's going to come eventually where we're going down um and and so then how does infinity play into that yeah um and this i'm gonna uh this actually be a good point to break and then and then uh i'll answer this last question and then we'll go into the business units as a separate session yeah um Ask the question again. How does infinity play into what? So we've got this S curve. So we're going yep. up on the S curve right now. Everybody's focused on the S curve, going up on the S curve, and then we've got. We're eventually we're gonna. There's gonna be the down curve, and so where does infinity play in terms of like that whole cycle? Like how does it get us out of that cycle? How does it? How does it separate the physics of that of that cycle? Yeah. Well, let's go. Let's go to the exceptions prove the rule thing of boundary cases. Let's take what Chris is doing with SMB as an example of a boundary case, and let's use that to sort of create the the answer. Should SMB or SMB line, which is like designed to be self service, so that what what are we talking about? The idea with with SMB is a company that wants to spend 5K a month, 2K a month, 4K a month. It could be a, you know, maybe it's a 25 person company, 30 person company, 40 person company, 50 person company. They're not going to spend as much as OpenAI. 
They're not going to spend as much as Amazon. They're not, they're not a Fortune 500 company that has massive needs. They, they might need a lead gen process. They might need a hiring process. They might need to scrape something, they, whatever. Can we give them self-serve tools? Can we provide minimal white, like, like basically not provide white glove service, minimal, minimal support, but still allow them to take advantage of the process power of our platform? Because even though each individual client is small, there are millions of them. Mm. So the TAM is big. So from a theoretical point of view, 10 clients spending 100K a year are just as good as one client spending a million dollars a year, right? If you can build a model that can support them just as efficiently or more efficiently, right? If anything, it could be higher margins and more efficient. It could be a better business in every way. Um, and it is not clear yet to Ben and myself and the board whether or and Chris, like we're having a conversation. I'm just like out in the open. I'm letting I'm letting you guys in on the deliberation because it's such a good example of we don't know whether this one goes stays in invisible mm. or whether it should be spun out. Mm. Is it victim to the innovator's dilemma? And therefore it should be spun out because it is a huge and incredible opportunity and it deserves to be pursued. Mm. It's an obvious adjacency. Mm. It's a kind of be a slam dunk business unit. Or should it be in, in invested in heavily by the main business? Because it's 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 like NVIDIA investing in its next graphics card. It's just, you know, a different type of graphics card. But it's like so obvious that it should be part of the main business because it's going to be a huge thing. And it could go either way because it's in the boundary, right? Whereas Everest was further along that spectrum. An adjacency, clearly an adjacency. It's where we started. It's actually it was our first business, but but too far out and therefore more obviously a spin. Okay. So now this is this goes to the answer to invisible. And this all goes back to like me in London walking through Hyde Park, list, you know, reading the innovator's dilemma and listening to music and thinking about like the future. <laughs> what should we do? I saw OpenAI was scaling super fast. Our culture was changing as we were hiring fast. We were becoming more and more short-term focused because we had to become short-term focused to keep up with the scale. And I saw the destabilizing effect of all that mm. concentration. I sort of saw, I glimpsed the future. I'm not, not claiming any sort of prophetic psychic vision. Not claiming that I don't have such things or such things don't exist. I'm just not making such. I'm just saying that I read a book that was slightly prophetic in that it was like, oh, okay. Like these dynamics are like physics. Oh shit. Like, what do I do? What do we do? I don't know. And I chose to address it at every possible level. Okay. The leadership team level, hire a CEO that's better than me at all these things mm. that is you know, going to drive execution better than I can because execution becomes more and more, and more and more and more of a full-time job. So I was just going to get swallowed by execution. I didn't want to get swallowed by execution. Hired Ben. And then at the leadership team level, since bringing in Ben, I was like, we need a bigger, better leadership team. So we've been hiring aggressively on the leadership team. Mm. And, and you know, we've hired a head of marketing. We've hired a head of ops. We've hired a head of CS. We've hired a head of sales. We've hired a head of BD. And, and so like that, all that is like 
upgrading there, like diversifying the leadership team in a sense. Um, uh, building new companies to go after all the adjacencies. So diversifying at the um, at the level of within the broad thesis of knowledge work, how do we diversify? Okay, so that's all the new BUs. So that's Everest, Realm, Lightning, Foundation, Radiance, um, Cosmos. Um, and then there's pushing all the function leaders of the functions in the main business to think about their functions as businesses. So pushing Mark to think about hiring as a business, pushing you know, uh, for GMs like Chris to be the GM of SMB. So pushing for that. Okay. So, so going through the levels, there's the level of execution, the level of team, there's the level mm -hmm. of businesses. Then there's the level of, um, uh, once you spin out all the businesses that aren't core to the main business, there's still diversification within by client and diversification by industry. So I would like the audience to consider a world in which, and this is a good way to close it, consider a world in which there is no infinity distraction anymore. Infinity is a separate company. You're working at Invisible. You don't really worry about infinity anymore. Um, you just worry about Invisible. Your primary economic interest is Invisible. You own Invisible stock. You have... you. Invisible shareholders had an opportunity in the past to have exposure to infinity. And, and so maybe you, maybe you own shares in infinity, but, but if you're an employee at invisible, if you're a partner in invisible, you're focused on invisible. Okay. So you're not distracted by infinity. You're also not distracted by any infinity BUs. They're just out there somewhere. There's a network effect. They're benefiting you. Maybe invisible is a customer of these. Maybe they're a customer of invisible, but like they're very peripheral. Within in, within Invisible, there's this overwhelming emphasis on diversifying by industry and diversifying by function and diversifying by use case and doubling and tripling down on um, uh, our barriers to entry, trying to build as many of the seven powers as possible, mm. doing the sort of deep R&D that extends our barriers to entry. Um, and taking each of the functions in the business and making them so robust that they could almost become their own separate business because they're that robust. That'll be the much more focused invisible we're moving towards. But if you zoom out at the whole overall move, the series of movements or the sequence of transactions, the sequence of transactions allowed you to continue to scale your main business diversify that main business and also build new businesses and build an overall leadership team or teams to go after all of it. It's a bit dizzying, honestly, but like that's kind of the journey we've been through in the last year. And, and we're still midway through the journey. So like interview me a year from now and we should be able to look back on this and be like, yeah, we did it. Like we spun out those businesses from the day, from the point of view of the day to day, anyone inside of any of these businesses is just concerned with that business. Um, we have leadership teams inside of all these businesses that are executing and capable of executing. Within the biggest business, the head of every function is really focused on scaling and developing their function 
to be so strong, it could almost be its own business. And our biggest business is diversified from an industry point of view and a use case point of view um, and a function point of view. It's really interesting. That I just want to give like a, a recap of that because like the corporation, corporation, the etymology of corporation means to bring in one body. And so now what you're trying to do is develop a whole new model to essentially split that out into multiple diverse bodies that then go off and attack all these different um, beachheads, essentially. Yes, that's a great way to end it. Um, and then next session, we'll dive into the actual BU concepts. Why are, they, why are they worth pursuing? Cool. Thank you so much for listening to the Plain Sight podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.